Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Y'all can have a seat. I think that may be one of the most dangerous prayers you and I can pray. Spirit, lead me. (laughs) Where my trust is without borders, let me walk upon the waters. Wherever you'd call me, God. Show up. Help me to do more. Help me rely on you. My faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. I think when we pray those kinds of prayers, God sits up and listens and says, Okay, you want to follow? I'll go with you. Hold on to the seat of your pants because this is going to be a wild ride and you're going to learn what the depth of relationship with me looks like. That's what we do when we say we want to know the gospel deeper, more truly, more deeply. And God comes and he speaks into us in those deep, deep places. And that's largely what we're seeking to do in this series. It's called Losing My Religion. We're in week four. Losing My Religion is this recognition That many times in the eyes of the world, religion is not simply how I understand that the universe came into being, the nature of God, who he is, does he exist or not. It's also this understanding about how we are good, how we're right with ourselves, with other people, but mostly right with God. And there's two kind of thoughts about how we would be made right with God, that we can be made by our own efforts. How, how good I am, do I have enough good on my side of the scale, do I do like a lot of bad things or a lot of good things, or it can be about God's efforts to get to me. And the truth is, most major world religions out there would say that it's about our effort to get to God. Am I enlightened enough? Do I do enough? What kind of rules do I follow? If I'm a really good person, then I've got like an extra set of rules and I'm really righteous. Is it about what we do? Because Christianity tells us that it's actually not about anything that we do. It's actually about what God has done on our behalf. And we just receive that. We go deeper into that. In fact, what we said when we started out the whole series was that if we're going to find our faith, it actually is going to require that we unroll that religion, that we lose our religion, religion, our effort to get to God. We have to roll that back. In fact, what we have to do is we have to lean even harder and deeper into the truth of the gospel of what God has done on our behalf. That's what Paul was doing with these Christians in this region of Galatia, several churches in the region of Turkey. He was speaking to these people who believed that they were saved by God's grace, but then that somehow they would earn God's favor because of how well they followed their old religion. And Paul was just kind of rolling that back. This morning, I want you to think about what a jersey does. Now, I've already today had people snicker at me saying, you have a jersey, Pastor Scott? Are you going to sports ball this morning? I don't really do a lot of sports, so yes, I borrowed this jersey from someone else. But I want you to think about what a jersey does. And, and think about it in the context of like relationships in community in a town. What does a jersey do? Shout it out. Shows your, what do you mean your spirit? Teams, okay. Who? Your sports ball spirit, who you're endorsing, right? What else? What does it do? Identifies. Identifies what? Okay, identifies who you are. What if someone else, what if someone else was wearing a different jersey? What's that? It separates you, right? 
So like if someone came in with a Steelers jersey or something, it would be like, well, you're not one of my people. You're one of those people or those depraved people from up north or something. Like it separates you from what else does it do? What else does a jersey do? Think about it in school. If you are in school and your team is playing the finals, you know, what do the players do that day in school? They may wear the jersey. What does it mean about how they should behave in class? How they should behave in the hallways? What is that? It means they're leaders. It means you reflect the jersey somehow. That's, that's true. All of those things are true. A jersey can separate who's in, who's out. It helps us recognize who our people are and who our people aren't. And it defines our attitudes and our behaviors. For example, if you saw someone, you know, and they had a, a jersey from something, you know, up in, up in New England, Boston, you would expect them to be very direct, right? Might maybe a little bit more direct than what you're used to. If you saw someone that wore like a Brazilian soccer t-shirt or whatnot, their jersey, you would say, you know, when they win, when they lose, they absolutely lose their mind. It, it's kind of just the behavioral cues about what it means to be a part of a given team. Hey, then this week, this is Doug's, right? I'm just admitting this is not my jersey. This is Doug. And Doug was telling me about where they went to school, to UVA, and what he really appreciated about that school and this, and this sports program was that they were built on a number of pillars that talked about their virtues and what that meant to him and how that was instilled in the players. And so it was something that was pervasive. It literally was laid on the foundations of this building that went up, and you'd see it on pillars across campus, and it defined who they were. It said, these are the things that we're really about, and that mattered to him, to find those kinds of behaviors. But it also says, in a sense, like, I'm a part of something bigger. I'm a higher purpose than just me. I'm connected with other people. We have a shared goal. And the other thing that can happen sometimes when we, when we have jerseys, you know, there's a name on the back of them, and you would buy a named jersey because you would like this player. You think there's something about the player worth emulating, you like their game, or how they play, maybe how they represent themselves off of the court. So there can be something there that we esteem and that we value. Now, what Paul was doing was he was answering a question amongst the people in the, in the church, and he was saying, what does it take to wear a jersey of Jesus? What does it take to be one of us? What do you have to do? Who do you have to be? Because what was happening in that community, in that environment where there were people who grew up in one culture and they said, you can't wear the jersey of Jesus unless you're a part of our culture, our Jewish culture, their ethnic culture. And so there was an exclusion that was happening. I'm not going to eat with you. I'm not going to be with you. You're one of those people. You're not wearing my jersey. You're wearing that jersey. And so they separated based off of their jerseyness, right? And so Paul is stepping in and he's saying, wait a minute. Something's out of alignment here. What does it take to wear the jersey of Jesus? What do you have to believe? Do you have to be Jewish? Do you have to get circumcised and follow all those rules in order to wear the jersey of Jesus? And what we found out last week is that Paul said, no, no, you don't. You don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. In fact, what he said was Abraham, okay? Abraham was kind of the founder of, of, 
of the Jew, like Jewish faith. He was the first Jewish father, and he was not made right because of what he achieved, because of what he received. In fact, the covenant between Abraham that God made with Abraham had nothing to do with his behavior. All it had to do was with what did Abraham believe in God's promise and in his provision. And that belief and that promise of, of God's provision is the thing that made him righteous. In fact, it, says, it tells us in Galatians that Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. So Paul kind of starts into that. In fact, Paul then goes on to say that we're never made right by by what we do. And so when this law of Moses came around after Abraham, we're not made right by that either. No one could ever be made right by the law. And so Paul then starts to ask some questions and exploring this jerseyness and what it means to be a part of the Christian faith. And so if you would, in your Bibles, there's the orange one in front of you or underneath you. This is going to be page 796. And we're in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Page 796 in the Orange Bibles. And by the way, if you don't have one, please take the Orange Bible. We'd love for you to have it. We actually need to order more because we're giving them away. And I think that's just wonderful. <laughs> it's great. Page 796, Galatians chapter 3. Paul asks this question. If we're not saved by the law, what's the point? What's the point of the law? Why did it ever come up? If there was like Abraham could be credited by righteousness and not by his belief and not by... So why did God even introduce the law in the first place? And this is what Paul says. He says that the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So what is the law? The law was what God gave Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And we tend to think about that if you have maybe seen some of these movies, Charlton Heston and Moses or Prince of Egypt, right? You tend to think of the tablets uh, with the, what was on the tablets. It was the the Ten Commandments, maybe you've heard of these. These are the things that Christians always fight for, that they're in the courtyard or, the, or, or, or uh, you know, up in the justice building. You know, we got to have the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were really only the table of contents. They were just 10 of 613 laws that God wanted his people to follow. 600 of these laws. That was just the opening kind of table of contents of all of that. And Paul says that those laws function as the guardian. In one sense, we would understand that word to be kind of like an under-military guard. Not, not able to move, move about freely. There is a sense of protection, but there's also restriction that happens. But when you roll it back, and maybe you have a different version of the Bible. Basically, it was in Greek, and then people had to translate it into English. And so they try to find the right word. And so your Bible might use a different word than guardian. One I grew up with said it was the tutor, T-U-T-O-R. It was a tutor or a disciplinarian or a schoolmaster. That's what the law was doing. I want you to think about what a schoolmaster does, what a, a tutor does. I tutor people in music, and a large part of what I do is when they're in front of me and they're playing guitar or drums or piano is I'm looking at them very, very, very carefully. And I'm watching how they hold their hands, right, Ty? I'm watching how they hold their hands. And if they move their hand in just the wrong way, Ellen knows what I'm talking about. If they put their fingers in the wrong spot, I say, wait, freeze, don't move. I need to show you what you're doing, and it's wrong. That's a large part of what I do. 
right? That's what a schoolmaster does. It points out where you're wrong. They teach you while they're under supervision. And yes, there's information involved, but it's also like shaping your conduct, shaping your behavior. And Paul says that the law was that. It was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster. All it was doing was showing you how wrong you actually were. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. It didn't show us our salvation. It only shows us our sin. So if I told you, hey, you shouldn't lie, how do you know that you shouldn't lie? Because actually, if someone calls me out, if I'm caught, if there's something that I feel embarrassed or shameful about, the most natural thing in the world for me to do is lie. Parents, you know this is true. This comes up as a regular theme as we raise our children, dealing with deception. It's the most natural thing for us to do. Someone had to tell you, don't lie. But just knowing that you shouldn't lie doesn't actually produce truthfulness in you, does it? All it does is show you, I shouldn't have done that. It's a smack on the hand. And Paul is saying that that's what the law is. It doesn't actually do anything good inside of us. It just shows us where we're off. And ultimately, it, it points us. It, it's pointing to, you're not good enough. You need a rescuer who can be good enough for you. That's why he says that the law was the guardian until Christ came. And once Christ came, we don't need that anymore. He says we can be justified by faith. When Jesus came. It changed everything. When his spirit comes upon those who believe in him, now we're changed from the inside out. Now I don't need that law anymore. I'm not under the old covenant. I'm under the new covenant. The spirit does that work inside of me. So now the desires inside of me, I still struggle with being fallen, but I want to do the things that are good. I want that. It's changed us. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant has come. One that wasn't based off of your behavior. One that's not based off of the law, but one that's based off of simply trusting in the promises and the provisions of God. He says, now that, verse 25, now that this faith has come, now that this faith has come, so this is faith by belief alone, not by our accomplishments we are no longer under a guardian. But you know what the, the Jews thought? The Jews didn't only think that it was, they were made right with God because of their actions. They actually thought they were made right with God because of their birth, because of their ethnicity. The righteous will live by faith, but they, they believed that they were made right with God because I'm a part of this tribe. I wear this jersey and you don't wear that jersey. And Paul is saying this is something new. Something new has happened. We're not under that guardian anymore. Christ is here. The old is gone. The new has come. And what Paul is showing us, he's showing us what his contemporaries did not see, what they had missed, what many of us miss as well. And that's that there's this incompatibility between the old and the new covenant. And listen, it's not just in matters of salvation, because for those of us that may have been raised in the church, you might have grown up like me, believing that the Old Testament, you know, you were saved by works, and the New Testament, you were saved by faith. We know that's not true. That's what we just talked about. Paul came around. He said, you were never saved by works. The Jewish people thought they were saved by birth. Now, Paul is showing up and says, no, it changes everything. It's no longer by birth. It used to be it was only open to the people that were 
children of, of, you know, like Moses and the law and the Jewish nation and the Gentiles, you would treat them differently and you would ostracize them. You say, you're not wearing my jersey. You're one of those people. You're not one of us. Now Paul shows up and says, guess what? God's grace is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. And it's not just your ethnicity. And it's not just if you're good or if you're bad. Because here's what, here's what religion by works does. It says that there is only redemption available for people that are good enough. It's only for the moral insiders. The moral outsiders. Those who struggle with lust. Those who struggle with truthfulness. Those who, who don't always... You know, who have racist thoughts inside them, those people who are angry and really deal with self-control or manipulation, which, by the way, is all of us, have no right to come to God. And yet the gospel shows us this, that Jesus on the cross with a thief right next to him, to the person who was most condemned in this world, says, today you will be with me in paradise. The good news of the gospel is it's not ethnicity and it's not behavior. It's simply our belief. And this is what Paul says. And he starts chipping away at the jerseyness. He says, in Christ, verse 26, you are all children of God through faith. You are all children of God. Now, in your orange Bibles, maybe if you have a new international version Bible, it says the word children because they were trying to not without necessity, needlessly make something gender specific. They were trying to be inclusive with their language. But I think that's a mistake. I think this word, uh, according to Tim Keller, this word doesn't mean that we're all children of God in a general way, but that like, like we're all descendants of God in that sense. He's actually speaking of a much deeper kind of relationship. And the way that it really should be translated is to say that we are all sons of God through faith. And we look at that and we think that's so exclusive, but if we're too quick to cor correct that kind of language, we miss how powerful, and listen, how radically egalitarian and equalizing this statement ultimately is. Because in most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Property was only ever passed down to sons. So when he says, you are all, all of you, are sons of God. What he's saying is this. He's saying that you have the status, even if you're a woman, of being a legal heir. You have the status of being a son of God. We are all heirs. And the thing is, we try to make it not offensive by, by kind of making it inclusive. But when we do that, we're actually taking it and we're losing all of the power because what Paul was saying is he's, God was taking those people that were out and God's bringing them in because women were treated like outsiders. And he's saying, no, 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 you are sons of God. Now, in case that offends you, remember that in Revelation, know that in Revelation, God calls the church the bride of Christ. So he calls guys the bride of Christ and he calls girls the sons of God. He's even handed in how he does that. And it's so wonderful and it's so radical that God would do that. He says, for all of you, moral insiders and outsiders in verse 27, all the oddballs, all the popular people who were baptized into Christ, who have faith in Jesus, who were brought into that, he says this. 
He says that you've clothed yourself with Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. Now, this is one of Paul's favorite metaphors that he loves to use. I'm going to put, I'm going to put Christ on like clothing. In other words, you're wearing a Jesus jersey. But I, I want to stop and I want to think about what that really means. I don't just want to kind of glance over that. This is a powerful, powerful statement. And it points to some really amazing things. That first, when we have on the Jesus jersey, when Christ is what we're wearing, it means that our primary identity is in Jesus. When I was in school, you could tell who a person was by how they dressed. The Goths all wore black. That's right. The jocks would wear jerseys. The preps would wear Hollister or Gap or J. Crew or whatever, right? You would know a girl because the girl would wear girl clothing, and you would know a boy because a boy would wear boy clothing. And if you were rich, you wore new clothes. And if you were poor, or if you listened to Nirvana, you would wear old clothes. That's how you would identify someone. Paul is saying your primary identity is now in Christ. I'm not known for my ethnicity. I'm not known for my gender or my wealth. I'm a, a royal priesthood. I'm loved by God. I'm called by his purposes. That's who I am. I'm clothed in Christ. The second thing that it really points to is, is think about your clothes. It's the closest thing that's to you. It, it, it represents for us this closeness to Christ is always with me. I depend on him moment by moment. I need him like I need a sweater on a cold day. It's closer to me than anything else. It provides warmth and protection for me. It goes with me everywhere I go. And that's what Christ is for you when you believe on him in faith. The third thing that's true about wearing Christ is it's a way that we imitate Jesus. Now, when my kid, all, every one of my three children, when they were little, they would all randomly just find my shoes or my glasses or my baseball hat and they would put it on them and they just think it was the funniest thing ever to put on my big cloppy feet or wear a shirt as a nightgown for the evening and it's just big and they're swimming in it or they've got my glasses and baseball hats just big and floating around their head and there's a sense where that's really cute that it's so big on their tiny little bodies. But there's also a sense when they would say, especially when they have my glasses on, hey look at me, I, I, look, I look just like daddy. I look just like daddy, I got his baseball cap on. And when we're clothed in Christ, that's what that's also saying. I look just like Jesus. I want to imitate him. It means we're inviting him to guide and direct us. It means we're asking the question, if I'm clothed in Christ, what would Jesus do in this parenting challenge that I'm in the middle of? Would he blow up and try to control and make them feel guilty? How would he operate in this way? When my friends have failed me, when I feel like maybe I need, I need to push someone out, what would Jesus do with that? When someone lied to me, how would Jesus deal with that? We invite Jesus into our decision-making process because we're clothed in Christ and he defines us. And we want to look like him. But there's another aspect to our clothing that I think is perhaps the most powerful. And that being clothed in Christ really represents our acceptability before God. One of my reoccurring nightmares, and I'm trying hard not to put images in your head here, but one of my reoccurring nightmares is like showing up 
at church or showing up to the workplace and not being fully clothed, <laughs> right? And that happens for a lot of people. In fact, I looked it up and there's whole theories about why people uniformly just kind of have this recurring nightmare. Because there's a sense where our clothes cover our shame and our nakedness and our vulnerability and the things that we would rather other people not see or know about. And so there's this like reoccurring nightmare that I'm laid bare, that I'm embarrassed, that I have shame. Now we wear clothes not because of simply how it identifies us, how it adorns us, but we wear clothes because it covers over our nakedness. So when, when Adam and Eve in the garden sinned, and they were instantly aware that all of a sudden they were naked. They, they went out and they found some fig leaves and they sewed them together. Now what's going to happen to the fig leaves? How long are they going to last? Not very long. They're going to dry up. They're going to dissolve away. It's not going to do a good job whatsoever. They were hiding from God. They had to deal with their nakedness somehow. That's what the law is, is fig leaves. It's just not going to last. It doesn't do anything. God saw their shame. Do you know what God responded, how God responded? He took one of these animals, these beautiful crea creations that he made that he said was good, and he had to kill them, snuff out their life, so that he could take the skins of the animal and cover the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. It took the, that loss of life to deal with the shame. And God has been doing that ever since. I, I really believe that one of the strongest driving forces in our lives, when, when, we follow, um, when we follow some of the things that cause the most relational conflict, whether that's lying, sassing, manipulating, controlling, that it's usually a shield that we put up because we deeply feel shame or embarrassment or vulnerability and we don't want to feel vulnerable. We don't want to feel shame. Shame is one of the most powerful emotions that we can have and it drives so much of what we do. And so there's this picture of being clothed with Christ that now my shame and my nakedness and these things that I would rather God not see that I would rather others not see. I'm clothed with Christ. And now when God looks at me, he, when he looks at us, he sees his sons because he sees his son. I'm clothed in Christ. The righteousness of Jesus is upon me. The book of Revelation even talks about the church being clothed in white, which stands for the righteous acts of the saints given for them to wear. It's not that I've done it. It's that I've been given the righteousness of Jesus. When he looks at me, when God looks at me, all he sees is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ because I'm clothed in him through faith. Guys, it's like this really meaningful and really powerful metaphor for what it means to have a new life in Christ. This is what's true about me, regardless of my ethnicity. This is what's true about me, regardless of my gender or my wealth. This is what's true about me, regardless of even my actions. 
You're clothed in Christ. And so that means we're thinking about him constantly and we're saying, what does it mean for me to be clothed in Christ? How do I bring my life under the lordship of Jesus? How can I do that? You know, I I used to define myself by my jersey of my own achievement. I used to define myself by my jersey of how much wealth I've accumulated or or what my gender is or, or what I've accomplished. But come on, guys. Like, I can't even keep my rules for myself. Really? Like I disappoint other people and myself just regularly? So, so when I'm clothed with Christ, I'm saying I'm taking that jersey off and I'm putting on a different jersey. I'm putting on the Jesus jersey. And this was such a big deal to Paul because remember what they were doing. They were saying, you're unclean. You're unholy. We can't have you as part of us because you're someone else. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. They're clothed in Christ as well. So this is what he says in verse 28. He says, this needs to affect how we treat each other. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. This is it, you ready? For you are all one. Say one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We're on the same team. We're on the same team. We're on the same team, not because we look alike, not because we are the same, but because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Look at, look at how Paul, he even brings up a couple of these categories here. So he talks about a, a cultural barrier, neither Jew nor Gentile. He's saying in the church, like, there shouldn't be this cultural barrier. This, this can't be true. You're clothed in Christ. I've experienced this as I've met other brothers and sisters that may not even speak my language from other cultures. We don't get to say you're less than because you don't speak English. In fact, that's one of the things we have to be very aware of when we go to other cultures and minister there. We're, our job is not to fix their lack of being you know, Western or their lack of, of, of being like our culture. And so we have to be careful when we go and we minister that, that we can go and we can help alleviate suffering and we can teach them about the, the gospel, but we're not there to make them like us. We have to be careful about that. He says there's a gender barrier, neither male nor female. Now, this is really, really significant because, because in that day, the women were seen as largely inferior. This is a significant, significant statement he's making. He's saying we're all equal before God. So guess what that means? When it comes between uh, you know, looking at someone who may not be your gender, it means that you treat them with respect, with dignity. It means that you treat them with honor. You seek out their opinion. You entrust them with influence and spiritual responsibility. As they've been faithful, as they've been available, as they've been teachable, you entrust them with that. Now listen, if we're going to be guided and directed by Christ, it means that we actually have to stop and think about, I wonder if I'm treating someone else like they're somehow not clothed in Christ, that they're less than me because they're not my gender. Right? I can't trust men because all men are untrustworthy. That's a bias that, that, that doesn't hold up under the banner of the gospel. That's, that's just a woman. Her opinion doesn't matter, doesn't hold up under the banner of the gospel. And he also brings up class as well. He brings up class, right? So, so it's giving preference to, to someone that was maybe on our side of the tracks, so to speak. 
We don't get to look at someone who, who, who maybe makes less than us and we would say you're morally or spiritually inferior and we don't get to look at someone who has a lot of resources and say you're just a hateful person and you don't love other people. That, none of that is true. Paul says you are all one in Christ. Now, but I think it's fascinating because we have to understand what he's saying in the concept, uh, in, in the context of the entire book. Paul is not saying, now listen, Paul is not saying that there's no distinctions within the church. So he's not saying that there shouldn't be any distinctions between our culture. He's not saying that there shouldn't be any distinction in our economic means or our genders because the whole point of the letter was saying, hey, Greeks, you don't have to give up your Greek culture in order to be a part of this banner of Christ, in order to wear the Jesus jersey. Christianity, it's fascinating when you look at it, it adapts to whatever culture it's at across time, across the globe. We don't insist that people wear a particular kind of clothes, that they pray a particular kind of way, that they have to adopt a certain culture from a certain region of the world in order to follow Jesus. Christianity adapts to that. So Paul's not expecting that we lose our distinctiveness when he calls us one. In fact, this is the way I said it in my notes, that unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing, okay? Here's, I'm gonna show this. Patrick, make sure the keyboard's on here, all right? Here's what would unity be. Unity would be if we were all this note. Everybody sang that exact same note. We'd all have to move together. Uniformity, sorry, excuse me, that's uniformity. Uniformity is when we are all the same note. We might even be different octaves, but we're all the same note. Unity is when we all are in harmony with one another. And each one of us has this flavor that we bring to the table that makes it richer. Right, Eric might be this note right here. My dad is gonna throw in a little bit of this. Make it a little jazzy right there. Chris gives us some suspense right there, right? But it's all in harmony together. That's the difference between unity and uniformity. We're not all expected to be the same, but we live in harmony with one another. In fact, this is what can happen. And the world tends to push this and like, hey, there needs to be no distinctions among you. There needs to be no distinctions amongst gender. But here's the, here's the thing, and that's an egalitarian view, right? There's no there's no distinctions in contrast with a complementarian view, which would say, hey, we complement one another. If we're egalitarian, then we're the same. I don't need you. I can accomplish everything. I am already that C. I don't need you at all. But if we're complementarian, I say, you know what? You're different than me. You see the world uniquely. You're made in the image of Christ. You matter to me massively. I am made better because of you. Without that, we can dismiss people. With that, we say, you are so very valuable. Here, look at it this way. Let's take it out of something that feels so culturally loaded. How about age? If we're not the same in age, but we're all equally valuable, it means that in our church, when we have someone that shows up that's older than me, I'm so thrilled. I need people who've gone through life ahead of me, who have experience, who can help me navigate life with more skill. And I need people that are younger than me. I love that we have kids here. Kids are wonderful because they show us what it means to have a childlike faith and to trust in God fully and seek after him. We need each other in all of that. We aren't uniform, but we can be completely unified. And Paul is saying, listen, don't, 
Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't say you're in a jersey and I'm in a different one and I'm going to separate from you. He says we're clothed in Christ. We are unified before him. That's the thing that matters. When you're in Christ, when you're part of the church, when you're part of the body of Christ, you have so much more in common than you have separate. He says, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me give you an example of how this kind of played out in my heart. Um, probably eight years ago, when we were starting to think about planting this church, I was invited to go down to Florida to a gathering of church planters, different stages of their journey, and we would learn from one another. And one of the pastors from a church down in Florida introduced us to someone that they had entrusted to share Christ in dark places. And this person got up to speak and he shared about how he was incarcerated and he was actually living homeless. But in that space where he was able to engage with people that were far from God that needed him. And that in the process he was experiencing resistance and he was experiencing challenges. And so that pastor that was leading, that invited this other person to speak, he said, hey, can we gather around this person and pray for them? Can I tell you, my heart had a moment there. And it this person smelled really, really bad. And they wore clothes that were ratty and tatted and, and I found myself in the ugliness of my own heart trying to say, how can I go further away from this person rather than closer to because they're not like me. And, and the spirit spoke to me and, and kind of arrested that thought and said, no, 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 don't, don't lead your life that way, Scott. And so I got, I was the closest to them, close enough to smell and to lay my hands on them and pray for them. And realize they're clothed in Christ. We are together, we are one, we are not the same. And he doesn't need to be like me and I don't need to be like him, but we are one and we are the same. That's, that's what the good news of the gospel does. It brings unity, not uniformity. Because when I compare what God did for me and what it means to be clothed in Christ, I'm not covered in my shame or my nakedness. He is my identity, the, that, that we're adopted as the sons of God who gets to be heirs of that. When I, when I get the spirit of God in me, it's such an unbelievable thing that the earthly advantages that I may or may not have don't matter at all. Who cares if my car is better or worse than theirs? Who cares if they're older or younger? Who cares if my culture is different than theirs? How can I look down on someone who's clothed in Christ that Jesus said I died for them? How can I do that? Why would I ever be jealous of someone else if I'm a son and heir of God's kingdom? That's what the good news does. 
And the bad news of the gospel, the law that points it out for me, it says it creates unity because we know that the blessings that I have don't come from my success. They don't come from my status. They don't come from my race or my my gender. That's all unearned. The grace that I have, God only came from his goodness. And so there's no reason to exclude somebody else because I think that I'm better than them. We're all sinners and we're all saved by grace. We are clothed in Christ. This is a part of our identity. And Paul just wanted to shake them and get it through their thick, thick heads. And I wonder how he would step into our culture and just want to shake us sometimes and say, get that through your head as well. Let me pray for us. And then I just want to respond. We're going to sing a song. It says, I am a conquering co-heir with Christ. And when we sing it, will you just resound with us with that as well? God, thanks for your word, and all of it is inspired. And there um, are things we need to hear in this message about what it means to treat other people with the dignity and respect that you've given us when we are clothed in you. God, make us one. God, let us celebrate our differences. I am so glad that we are not all one note because we become a much more amazing chord when we come together, Lord, under your banner. God, make us one. Unite us in your name, we pray. Christ's name. Amen.